Welcome back to Blamo, a podcast with an exclamation point. My guest this week is musician and producer Eben D'Amico. Eben and I discussed his old band, Saves the Day, and how their first album, Through Being Cool, shaped what was to become the emo music genre. We also discussed how he first met on AOL Instant Messenger. Let's do it. We're live. Hi. We're recording. Wow. Evan D'Amico. Is that, did I say it correctly? Yes, thank you. Okay. Nice. Not D'Amico. Not, not D'Amico, not Eben. No, not Eben. Although, not even. I'll tell you, uh, I found this out over the last few years, is that there are people that have the exact same first name as me, spelled E-B-E-N, that pronounce it Eben. And those people are like the scourge of my existence because <laughs> they're the reason that everybody, maybe, who meets me for the first time pronounces my name Eben. Yeah. But I'm not sensitive about it. Like, it's been... How do you correct them? Are you like, oh, yeah, cool, it's Evan? It depends on the relate. <laughs> it depends on the relationship. Like, if I'm meeting you at a party and it's loud and, like, I may not ever talk to you again, I'll let you call me by whatever wrong name you're calling me by. If that's, it's That's good manners. It might be Evan. It might be Eben. Because I don't, I don't like to make people feel bad about it. I'm super empathetic. Uh, and... But it also has given me like major nerves about calling other people by the wrong name. So I might, as a way of like sort of protecting myself against that, not call you by your name at all. <laughs> but I know your name, Jay Kirkland. That's right. That's right. I, I've, I'll introduce myself to people sometime and they're like, oh, hey, my name's Jeremy. And they're like, Jason? No. Jimmy? No. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've been there, man. I feel your pain. So I really, really, really wanted to have you on when I first started doing this because I think a lot of people know who you are in terms of the tidal wave that you have kind of like done in the music scene and the like behind the scenes. And this is in terms of how you and the previous band that you're in and stuff that you're doing now have more or less influenced, I would say, the last 20 years of alternative music in the industry. Wow. And so like that's a big, big, heavy thing to say. Yes. But you were in a band called Saves a Day. Correct. And you played bass in Saves a Day. I did, yeah. And in that band, I mean, I know tons of people who got into Saves a Day for a particular thing, and that was the bass lines. Because there was Chris Conley's kind of like whiny voice. And I'm, I'm saying these things in common. I love Saves a sure, Day. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, in an affectionate way, of course. Yeah, there yeah. was like that kind of cool voice. Mm. And I... One of the things that I didn't tell you this before we started mm. is how you and I met two or three times before we even <gasps> sat down and did this. Did we really? We met on. Oh AOL my god, I'm Messenger. terrible. Did we really? What was your screen name? I was. What was your handle? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I was Vitamin J twenty six. Yes. What? <laughs> yeah. Wow, you're such a man about town, <laughs> digitally and physically. And you were Eben Yearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my first band, my punk bands that I okay. was in. And I, so I found your screen name on, I think it was like STL Punk or Punk News. Uh-huh. And they were like, hey, if anyone's a fan of Saves the Day, this is the dude's screen name. Wow. And I was. They aired me out on there like that, huh? <laughs> I was like 15, no, it was 15 or 16 at the time. Mm. And so this is legit 15, 16 years ago. Sure. And. Wow, I that's a long time. I messaged you, yeah, and you responded. And you were like, "Who is this? was I nice or was I a jerk?" You were, no, you were super cool. Uh huh. Because I think you guys were coming to play either at Mississippi Nights or the Creepy Crawl. Right. Oh yeah. God, I remember those places. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, "Hey, I'm a huge fan. 
And Through Being Cool is out, and this is maybe 90, maybe 2099. Okay. So Stay Where yeah. You Are didn't come out yet. So this was right, right after Through Being Cool came out. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm 18 or 19 at the time. Myself. Okay. Oh, yeah. Cause yeah, you're not much older than me. Not much. Yeah. And so I messaged you and I was like, hey, I'm a huge fan. I love Save the Day. <laughs> and then you were like, oh, you're like, do I know you? Did, did we meet? And I was like, uh, no, I, I was like, a friend of yours gave this to me. And I remember I was sitting next to another friend of mine as I was typing to you. A friend like, of a friend of mine, <laughs> a message board. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was like, that's cool, though. I was like, oh, fuck. I was like, what do I say? What do I say? Right. And uh, he was like, just tell him that a friend of it. I was like, yeah, yeah, good idea. And then you were like, oh, cool. Who was it? And then I just wrote, hey, Mercedes. <laughs> <laughs> wow you're so sneaky and i was like i'm a liar i'm a liar and then you were like cool gotta go talk later <laughs> and and you were just like and i was like damn it and so then i saw you online another time uh-huh. and a good friend of mine who's still friends of mine to this day i told him that i talked to you and he was like oh yeah yeah. well he's like message him and ask him about the show so i basically asked you about the show i told you the truth and i was like hey i don't really know you i found this on a punk punk message board right and you were like okay cool you're like oh are you coming to the show and then you're like all right see you there gonna be fun but i (laughs) i don't know if you knew this but like when i got to talk to you even just for like a few seconds or a few minutes that was some of the coolest times of my life and that was like no i'm I'm serious because i would listen to a friend of mine I, i had just moved from uh north county st louis like i grew up in like ferguson florissant area okay which people are you know know is famous for all the ferguson stuff Mm. and we moved out uh my my dad was like at the head of this church and we moved uh out to like a different area st louis Mm -hmm. and so i knew no one i had zero friends and all i did was sit and listen on my fucking mini disc by the way (laughs) mini disc yeah (laughs) shout out mini disc (laughs) to underappreciated format agreed to saves the day and that and so like that album and i like played along to it and hollyhocks forget me nots and every single mm-hmm. thing over and over and over again what was your instrument uh i played guitar mm-hmm. and piano but i got more and more into bass and mm-hmm. appreciative of bass when i started listening to uh saves the day and oh, also so sweet and also the beatles because like the beatles at the time like i don't know if it was how you played bass and we can get into this a little bit later mm-hmm. but you were a blend of like busy bass mm-hmm. yeah. but also like so like you, you follow the kick right every bass player more or less is just like in line with the kick sure if you're if you're listening to this this is kind of what bass players do and if you what we're to, supposed to do yeah, <laughs> if you wanted to hear really good bass you'd listen to things that were like somewhat in the pocket but a little bit different and at least like for me that was like paul sure. mccartney or then i watched you guys and you guys were on late show with craig kilborn mm-hmm. yeah. i like idolized your style with the track jacket zipped all the way up fred perry <laughs> track jacket zipped all the way up yeah and that uh, was a thing that was definitely a thing on the fashion tip like during that time i don't know why it was a thing but the whole uh like the punk and hardcore scene of like the, er- the late 90s early 2000s everyone was obsessed with Britpop at the time so yeah there was a lot of like reverence for like blur and oasis and so there were a lot of like like i think i owned a kappa jacket at one point and nice like, which is very funny because now there's like the gosha rupchinski kappa collab and totally it's all super cool again it's all cyclical coming back around yeah i basically like we should you know you never as you get older you realize that you shouldn't throw anything out because like something nope. that you were into when you were 
10 years younger is going to be dope again. Like, Did you ever have Lotto? Remember Lotto? Uh-uh. What's that? Lotto is like similar to Kappa and uh-huh. Adidas and they were Italian like soccer brand and their thing was What was like, the logo? It was two horizontal diamonds that were kind of overlapping. No, I don't know that one. Oh, I'll show it to you. That later. sounds fresh. Lotto, Lotto was sick. <laughs> I actually have an Adidas tracksuit that I wear now that nice. a friend of mine gave me, like completely like tongue in cheek. Like I have this Adidas tracksuit, like like it's your size, and I was like, oh cool, and then like ended up wearing it. Polyester, IRL, yeah. Nice. The fit was nice though, but yeah. Anyway, so like that that period of time, like all the like hardcore kids were like all into like parkas and like yeah and, and like soccer wear and all that stuff. Like Adidas Sambas were a thing too. North Face Denali Fleece. Yeah, totally. There was a photo I had in my locker of of Zay but then there was a Chris Conley North Face Fleece when he had like the shaggy hair. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, because that was that was like the look at the time. You had Abercrombie Chinos, Birkenstock clogs, North Face <laughs> Denali Fleece, and some type of shaggy hair. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it was, which is very funny because that's kind of a look now. These yeah. Days. Oh, very much so. I still get roasted for the shoes I'm wearing on the cover of said album, which were these like New Balances. Really ugly, teched out New Balances. Oh, they were sick. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> now you're just lying. No, they were. They were cool. <laughs> All right, continue. No, you were so, saying. So the reason why I gave an obscenely long introduction is because <laughs> I think I wanted other people to listen to this too, because. In some weird way, I didn't even realize this, but a few people have emailed me and been like, yeah, I kind of like learning like how weird you are. On this. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit, this is supposed to be about other people. <laughs> but so this is why you were such an important person in my life. And I think, you know, now that we've established that, I definitely want to talk to you more about like, because from what I know, you, I don't know if you're a New Jersey kid or a Long Island kid mm-hmm. or... Long Islands. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, but you joined saves the day after um can't slow me down uh yes i let me think let me think i was i grew up in long island in a uh a town of nassau county on the north shore called seacliff uh and i in high school i got into the punk and hardcore scene as a you know it's kind of a an entry point into music because it's such a accessible there there's something that was really welcoming about it. You know, you go to your local VFW hall or yeah. skate park or whatever it is that, or basement. And, uh, there are these people on stage or on the floor that are, you know, not fantastically good at their instruments most of the time. And there's like this very sort of, uh, like inclusive, I mean, it's just, it was a scene and like and kind of had that high school aspect to it too but you know there's like a physical aspect to it that's welcoming people are like jumping all over each other and singing and like it's it to me being like a shy kind of a kind of insecure kid who uh also like wanted to express himself like sure. that felt like an entry point i had been playing bass for a while i started as a bass player because um my parents wouldn't let me play drums. I I was supposed Makes to sense. I was supposed to be a drummer. I said, "Can I play drums, mom and dad?" They <laughs> said, "No. That's going to be really loud. You can play anything else." Right. Um I went with bass because it's like this was the 90s, right? So, it's a combination of uh it's a combination of like, you know, there were 
you know, around that time, there were these bass players that were very, like, f- flamboyant in their playing style. And out front, you know, you had, like, Flea and Les Claypool. And, yeah, Primus. Yeah, and I think I looked at these. So there's that, and then there's the fact that I grew up in a household where... So this is funny. There's three bass players in my nuclear family. My father was a <laughs> bass player. He He was a band guy, like, until they had me when they were, like, 25 or 26. Um, and then he switched over to food and he's a restaurant guy. Oh, okay. Shout out five napkin burger. If you know that, that's place. your fam. That's my fam. Holy moly. Yeah. That's like his main thing. There's like a bunch of other places. Um, and then my youngest brother, Gabe, who is just turned 29. Uh, he is in a, he's also a bass player. He's in a fantastic band called Mr. Twin Sister. Have you ever heard of them? They were a band called Twin Sister beforehand, Correct. right? Yeah, yeah, my friends were actually, I think they were trying to sign them at one point. Yeah, they're yeah. great bands. Seem to not want to be on a record label. Um, <laughs> Which maybe is, we can talk about this later, but that yeah. may be kind of the best decision for bands now is to not be on a record label. I think so. It, can, it definitely can be, you know what I mean? Right. Depending on who you want to be and like what your, what your career path is, right. what you, how you want to go about making your art. All right, I totally hijacked that. Please continue. No, no, this is the, I. Well, we were talking about you. So you, you said that you grew up in Long Island, and then yeah, you yeah. joined. Oh, right. Okay. You joined Save the Day after. Yeah, yeah. Um, after Cancel It Down, which was their first, the yeah. first Save the Day album. Sure. So this is after, uh, right after I graduated high school, I had quit my high school band, thinking like, okay, I guess I'm going to go to college now, and uh, really didn't want to go to college. Wasn't ready. Uh, and for some reason I got this, maybe I might've been an instant message from Chris Conley, uh, who was from like, what I read, it was an instant message. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> you did your homework. <laughs> no. you remember better than I do. <laughs> I think it was. Yeah. And, and it was just a like, Hey man, like, you know, they knew our bands had played the band I was in the like punk hardcore band that I was in had played with them. So we had crossed paths once or twice. Maybe right. even just once. And so he gave me a shout and said, like, come try out. So I took my bass into my parents' basement and plugged away, learning their stuff a little bit, and then went out to Princeton, New Jersey, in Chris's mom's basement, where the band practiced at that time. And uh I and I think the thing that I remember actually that helped me to make the decision, which at the time I was kind of feeling like, you know what, this music thing is way too dicey and I guess I need to go to college. I have to say, you know, it's like that band and like music in general, like could have saved my life. I'm not sure. You never know like which forking path, you know, where it would have ended up, where you, where it would have plopped you later in life. But uh, I got this instant message and I then later met with them in the city. I think Brian, the drummer at the time, Brian Newman and Chris. It was and then was Dave in at the time too? Dave was in, but I didn't meet him until re- the first rehearsal. I met them at the time. I feel like I like went and hung with them at a show at Coney Island High, which were you, was that before your time? Do you remember Coney Island High at all? Oh no. It was on St. Mark's place. Um, it was like, I'm dating myself here by the way, but whatever. Uh, it's, it's like an old it was an old punk venue and was right on St. Mark's, like kind of like in the middle uh, on the uptown side. And I think I met them there and 
I remember Chris giving me a cassette of respect of yeah totally <laughs> of of demos of what would be the through being cool record and I listened to them and instantly it was one of those decisions in life that is supposed to be really difficult but became really easy where I was mm. just kind of like okay I'm gonna do this and then I just was sort of like I went for the, I went for the rehearsal uh, and then said you know mom and dad I'm not going to college. And they were like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be in a band. Yeah, exactly. And I think so. This, what year is this? This is I want to say, I want to say it was 98. Okay. I, I, I graduated college, college. I graduated high school. I actually graduated college in like respect in late when I was like, uh, in like maybe like 20, 20, 2012 or 2013, but that's a different, that's a different story. I went after my band's time. Uh, but, um, uh, uh, what was the question? So, no, it's all right. So you joined, you joined Saves the Day. Is uh, it, you felt like it was a, a tough decision, but you did it. And it, it, was, it, it be- felt easy. It became an easy decision as soon as I heard and the songs that were going to be that record. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, and I thought I had the first demo and I had heard the Cancel It Down record. Uh, and Cancel It Down and Through Being Cool, I mean, from a listener and someone who's probably heard it hundreds of times. Yeah. Pretty different. Totally. I mean, they were figuring, they were, Chris was figuring his thing out as a, as a songwriter. Uh, It was, you know, they they were really young and they were really into, you know, it was very much, uh, it was showing influences on its sleeve of like what they were into at the time. Right. Which is a lot of the time it's, it's a very natural thing when you're young and writing songs. But, the thing that stuck out to me about it, and I remember this when I had the demo tape, the thing, the one that came before that record, I forgot if it had a name, but uh, there's just this urgency about it. That's, that's the only way I can classify it. And like the way that he sang and in his lyrics, and there was something, it just had a thing that, uh, I still use this term today, like when I work on music, uh, whether it's like, to decide to work with somebody or like to describe the quality of something that I'm interested in. And I would just say that, like, I believe that person. Uh, right. So like, I, I believed it, you know, it sound it sounded, there was something about it that connected. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, when I, I heard that, that bunch of demos that was going to be that record and it instantly made my decision a lot easier. So just, one of the things that was that like, you guys didn't know that when you did this mm-hmm. is, so through being cool comes out, it's pretty successful. Yeah. I was at the very beginning, and I don't think you or maybe anyone else knew how big or how influential it was until like further down the road. No. In terms, so like I think the first week, what you sold like one hundred twenty thousand copies, right? And was it that much? Yeah, that's so much. I sound scanned you guys earlier. Wow, remember <laughs> sound scan, dude? Is sound scan still a thing? It is, but the tough thing now is like incorporating digital into mm, it, and like sure, sure. You know, like what constitutes streams. as an album play, what constitutes as download. Yeah, streams. Yeah, so it's it's weird, but uh, so yeah, you guys had a pretty freaking good first week, but this is also at a time where like the number one album is millions sure. in the in the week. And, but in terms of, and this is the thing that I want to get to, you mm-hmm. guys more or less birthed a genre mm-hmm. because the your music was, you guys had hardcore influences, but mm-hmm. you weren't a hardcore band at all. And this is, but you guys would be a little bit, dare I use the term emotional in your music, (laughs) thus 
making emo okay sure. and i think the thing is is like you know pete went to fallout boy um the dudes from my chemical romance um you have taken back sunday you have thursday all of this stuff kind of in like within the next five years all come out and almost every single one of these guys including like the dudes from midtown and all the other stuff they cited through being cool as the record that made it okay to make their music Wow, is that true? Yes, that is true. Oh, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, like Gabe Sporta right. said it. Um, the dudes from Taking Back Sunday were, you know, because you guys were kind of like peers at the time. Because Taking Back Sunday, I mean, they were a little bit more heavier mm. than you guys. Yeah. But this, they became all of you guys became this kind of like emo scene because also of Conley's lyrics. I mean, I loved and identified with that record so much, even though he had. Uh, what was like one of the things like run right over and shoved down your throat? Yeah, some of them, some of them could be get pretty grisly. Yeah, it sounded on. kind of violent, but yeah. because there was so much melody in them and stuff, yeah. you're like, oh yeah, that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> and I think you know people criticize that aspect of it a lot, and I, you know, it's stuff like that is probably you know had a lot to do with what the appeal was to listeners of a certain age is that it was very uh it was very emotive you know it it, it yeah. was it, to, to use the most uncreative adjective in the world <laughs> uh you know it was something that spoke to these you know teenage these strong teenage feelings that it's it, yeah it, of loss of loving someone of like in my position going to a new school and, and being called a faggot and not sure. having any friends because yeah, yeah. i wore big glasses and you know and sure the funny thing is the friends that I made, including one of my friends to this day, the thing that I became friends with was, or the thing that we bonded over was mm. how much we loved Saves the Day. Sure. So oh, it was like cool. Saves the Day, Death Cab, you know, Taking Back Sunday, Midtown, mm. Thursday, all that other stuff um, made, made things okay to like keep living and, you know, <laughs> being some sure. white kid at some fancy school, not even realizing how privileged I was. Right, yeah. It made but, you feel okay about being angsty, right? Yeah. yeah. That's the, I mean, that's part of, like, I think why it connected with so many people is it really, like, pushed that teenage angst button. Right. Uh, and that's cool. I mean, you know, it's, like, there's a, there's something important about uh, work that can do that for you. Yeah. You know, at that at that age. And I think only something like music has that ability and i think it's what was it someone was talking about like a perfect example you have different forms of audio and how your brain reacts to it and so sure. you have like narrative and linear audio in which like something like this you hear it you take it in and there's really only one way to understand it sure and then you listen to music and you listen to music and we all it's we all hear the same music but we all interpret it very differently mm -hmm. because that awakens something in your brain and your body and triggers this dopamine effects. Like when I hear, cause I re-listened to some of the saves today stuff on, on the mm -hmm. way over here. And I freaking started crying on the train hearing. <laughs> oh, that's adorable. You know, I'm serious. <laughs> and I know I'm like buttering you up, but like, I don't know Please if you're buttering. aware of how, of how much this music affected people like me. And the first track off your guys' next album. So you guys do through being cool. Mm -hmm. You're on equal vision, which was a, super tiny label at the time yeah hard m mostly hardcore. hardcore label yeah and then you guys went to vagrant mm -hmm. and vagrant wasn't that big of an album yet or excuse me of a label yet but vagrant became even bigger when they had like 
dashboard, which also was riding off the emo movement. Yeah. Newfound Glory, which I was never a fan of. Mm-hmm. I like that one song, but they just, you know, GCDE minor gets boring after a while. Sure. And then you guys go on to Vagrant and you released um, Stay What You Are. Yeah. Yeah, it was us, us and the, the Get Up Kids, too. Yeah, Get we, Up Kids, too, which was, you know, that's also this kind of, you know, we, we talked about Rob from Get Up Kids and Spoon. Yeah. This mutual homie. friend of ours. Yeah. yeah. Shout out Rob Pope. Um, but like, again, that, all of that stuff became every writer, alternative press and spin and all these people had no idea what to lump you guys into. Sure. And thus em- emotional rock, emo the, yeah, music. The, yeah, exactly. Thus the, uh, <laughs> emo music is born. The much reviled term was born. So, uh. you know, my thing, cause I've talked way too much on this already. How did you guys know what you were doing when you recorded this stuff? No. I mean, what do you mean by that? So, I mean, did you... Because surely, here's the cool thing at the time. Sure. You guys are playing shows, mm-hmm. and you're meeting people, and you're talking to them. Were people as open as me about how much your music was affecting them? Yes, very much so. And it progressively... Uh, you know, it, it's... You're always... You know, part of the cool thing about being in that kind of a band at that time in one's life is that you have such a... A close one-to-one relationship with your audience because mm-hmm. uh, this is no myspace this n- none of that stuff existed yet no it was mostly like you know as we were talking about this earlier the, uh it was mostly like ims and like message boards were like the that was like the primary that was the primary medium of like shit talking at the time were message boards yeah. you know is like that's where people would like you know vent and that's where people would get into like wars ideological wars with each other yeah there was no like twitter or anything like that um but um i lost my train of thought <laughs> well uh, basically like how aware were you of oh, how right. much your music was affecting others yeah uh because you guys were young too very very young i mean you know late teens into our early 20s uh and it became evident really quickly. I mean, it was a, it was a thing that I don't know if we fully grasped at the time because we were on this ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we saw how quickly the audience was growing, and we saw how the how the work uh, created such a visceral reaction in people, and how how deeply people connected to the music. I think you know. Uh, Chris was always a very, um, he was, uh, let's see, what's the word I'm trying to, I'm trying to rummage around for here. Uh, he was just always a very instinct, instinctual, you know, like the stuff he was writing was because he wanted to write it. Uh, Mm -hmm. and he was, you know, it wasn't like taking market research of what is a hit song. No, but the (laughs) band, but the, the bands, the band, the guys in the band, myself included, uh, provided a lot of that function a lot of the time in a in a very sort of like democratic way you know mm-hmm. there was there's always you know you know this being a musician yourself uh there's always a process of revising and editing that goes into making a, a body of work a, a record a song a record a, an album or a song sure. record is a hard term nowadays because some people take that to mean like i would say the definition now yeah okay like an lp making an entire album Album. let's say album even though that's a definition that's in flux right now as well (laughs) um we're old uh but um 
so the um there you know there's a process of uh there was a process of checks and balances in terms of like there were songs getting written and then bands discussions and rehearsals and processes of revision to help uh make the final product but you know for the most part it was very uh sort of honest honest uh writing and recording it was very kind of like i think the through being cool record in particular it was we turned it into a thing as bands together but it was a it was a bunch of songs that he had written and we polished them and turned them into this into this thing and there you know there's always creative decisions being made along the way how to make something sound how to play it yeah. how to present it and those all kind of feed into what what audience hears at the end but you know the the special thing about it the the pixie dust of the whole thing is that it connected with people pushed this button with people yeah uh, and that's something that you can't that you can't quantify and you can't really that's something that's magical that just that just happens and it was bizarre and cool and and exciting to be uh to be on the ride for something like that to happen right and then and stay what you are i mean cuz you guys did through being cool from the notes that i had in 11 days mm-hmm. it was it was recorded that sounds in, about right in 11 days which you know and this is something cuz i want to get further into now like mm-hmm. the stuff that you're doing sure. that's not really the norm anymore for people that record music no. Um, more now, like, if you say, like, you're Solange or Beyonce or any of these people, you are, well, maybe they're, like, too big. But if you're, like, a band, you'll book a ton of studio time, and you'll just sit in there. And you'll just write in the studio and do that. And you'll take so much time, like, months on end of of that to make an album. And you guys kind of go out and do it in 11 days. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think that, like... I feel like this is still something that I hope that it's still something that like young bands and young musicians do nowadays because it's something that uh I miss a lot. Uh well, let me back up. I I th- when we made that record and the way that you made records as a band in my experience at that time in the industry and in the world is that you spend all you wrote your songs, you spent a lot of time arranging them, you know, rehearsing the songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was done, and you basically just go, and now we're putting it on tape. More or less, yeah. And then, and then you're, you're going to work with a producer or an engineer. At, at, at that stage, we, we always worked with producers, or m- with my time with the band, we always used producers. Uh, that was a guy called Steve Evitz, uh, who helped to give, and the function, this is something we can talk more about later also, is that the function of what a producer did for that kind of uh, album making process is was different than the contemporary. Often, what the contemporary definition of it is is that you know we went into the studio, we played the songs, we played our parts, did our overdubs, you know, added things as they needed to be added, uh, did the vocals, and that was our record. Mixed it, finished. Yeah, part of that was about part of it's about budget. Um, you know, you have. Is were you with Equal Vision before? Because uh, I think I think the Can't Slow Down record came out on Equal Vision, if I remember correctly. But like in terms of budget and pay, I mean, were you guys all like pooling your money together to record? No, no, that, it was it wasn't it was not self financed. It was label financed. But you know, it's it's a tiny label. There was a certain amount of budget, and right. 
you know, I think it was arrived upon that this is the time that we can go into the studio and do it. And I think that there's something really special about that. Uh, and I, I feel like... In terms of the restraints, you're saying? Yeah. The, there's, and in terms of... Well, so to talk about what you, were, what, what you touched on earlier, uh, when I... My experience making music in this modern era is yeah. uh, it's obviously really different to, from the way that it was 10 or 15 years ago. I had the ex- I had the the experience of uh you know this was a time where there was more there were more resources for one thing there were more resources uh financially speaking to mm-hmm. to use studios and producers uh and things like that um and the technology was also different so those are those are two things that changed is that the the industry has shrunk has compressed and condensed in terms of money available available resources and then at the same time, uh, music technology has become a lot more accessible to everybody. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be doing w- what I do. And maybe this is another conversation thread altogether, but I wouldn't be doing what I do. I never went specifically to like engineering school or anything like that. It's because of modern music technology that I'm able, I've been able to find my way into a career of making music for a living after my band experience. Yeah. Um, but. So I, you know, I had this experience uh, in in my in my early twenties of getting to yeah at the beginning make records that you know you, you go in you have eleven days you bang it out in that time and and that's your record and hopefully it's great. Uh, progressively going forward, you know, the next record that we did after that uh, was in Los Angeles and in some of the greatest, most hallowed studio, studios in the city. Uh, getting to spend. You know, it might might have been two months on it, um, but there's still something special about that 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 is doesn't happen as much today. It's it's this ability to uh, kind of plant yourself in a space and make something with with the, a common team of people. Yeah. You know, you've got you've you've got the same producer, the same engineer. You know, the same. Back then, it was. Uh, I always like to tell all of the a lot of young musicians that i work with about this is that like this is my like old man thing to say is like i you know i remember seeing drums get edited with a with a razor blade you yeah know, th- to fix the timing on drums uh, so at that time just to catch people up is you would record music on actual analog tape yeah so real to real yeah yeah like real to real tape which a lot of people are trying to use now in some way shape or form but sure. the big thing that you guys I would say that people now, like if you want to make music when you're saying the digital era, is you have an unlimited amount of tracks. Yeah, And correct. you can just keep recording and you can do these things where you would like punch in and sure. overdub and comp all of your takes versus when you would record music, say, like I like always joke that like the 70s were the golden age of recording music. It's because that stuff didn't exist. Sure. But it was further along than say the 19. 19- Six, uh, well, the late 1950s and 60s, in which people just had four track or eight track. Sure. Or four track, actually. You yeah. know, when eight track, 16 track, when basically you can record Dark Side of the Moon off 16 tracks, yeah. which is an unbelievable album. Yeah. Like, that's, that's like kind of the best restraints sure. that you have. And so you guys are in LA, you're recording Stay What You Are, which is probably critically your most successful album. Hmm. Um, you know, I mean, what, so like, a perfect example is at your funeral. Mm-hmm. Like, can you walk me through in an abridged version, I guess, of 
that song from demo to sure. cutting it. Yeah. Uh, I think... Which was your first single. Right. Yeah. Our first single, which, uh, you know, the the events of September 11th, it, it ended up... It was. I remember it was climbing at radio at the time, and uh, September 11th happened, and because of the lyrical content, it just drops off. And oh my god, I didn't even put that together. Yeah, yeah. It was at the time, if I remember correctly, it was it was gaining steam all over the place at radio, and then um, you know September 11th happened, and because of that, there were a lot of you know there was a renewed. There, there was a new uh, sense of sensitivity all over the country for certain things. So, right, because the the chorus was at your funeral. I will sing the requiem. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a it's a, the lyrics are very morbid. So, yeah. uh, you know, there you had other things. You know, disturbed like let the bodies hit the floors. Like <laughs> that got yanked pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sonically, a very different song. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> little bit different um to finish my earlier thought though and then we'll talk about we'll we'll talk about um uh at your funeral i what i was saying a second ago is that uh the thing that's changed now is that that experience is very it in my experience music is made very piecemeal nowadays it's not very it's not as much about us being in one space and working things out you know Mm. Even the the records that I've worked on recently that are more, I'm using air quotes now, listening mm-hmm. audience, rock, meaning like, you know, there are, there are more guitars and live instruments in it, even those types of things. When I start, maybe you start them out in a live studio setting with musicians playing together, but then there's an extensive process of editing. Uh, you're doing things with people that, and you're not necessarily in the same room together all the time. You're emailing things back and forth. The process of collaboration out of necessity and and uh also out of uh out of because of the way that the technology has changed because you can do it mm-hmm. uh the process of making things has has really evolved backwards and forwards you know there's a there's a positive and a negative to every aspect of it yeah um in the last fifteen years. I mean, but it, one of the positives is that there are tons of bands who maybe for because a label wouldn't sign them or they didn't have the resources to yeah. make an album end up making an album on themselves. And the fact that they don't know how to do some of these things, yeah. the improvisational techniques that are used to get that sound are pretty cool. Oh, absolutely. But you also have, you know, my dad, because my dad was in the music industry for a long time, you have the fact that if you're an A&R guy, or anything like that, and you're trying to find good music, the amount of, for lack of a better term, noise that you have to sift through to find that good band Absolutely. is astronomically bigger. There's so much more stuff now. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, the way that we consume music has changed so dramatically. You know, it's, I struggle with it myself. You know, I knew that we were going to be talking about music uh, today, obviously. And I was trying to think about like what have I loved and listened to in the last year or two, and like what am I listening to at home? My experience of of consuming music, of listening to and enjoying music, has changed so much because the limitations have been lifted. And this circles back to the recording discussion that we're having: is that uh, you know it's it's sometimes hard to know how to approach like the unlimited options of Spotify. You know, 
I, I want to, I want to be able to listen to albums. I gravitate towards things that are a cohesive artistic statement, but it's not really set up. These streaming services are not really set up that way. It's set up to sort of encourage grazing, you know, hopping from one thing to another. Yeah. Especially something like Spotify, which they say is all about like curating playlists and yeah. And the social aspect of it. Yeah. And that's, you know. Which I'm not, I don't use Spotify. You don't? No. How do you listen to music? I buy the album. If, if, I, if I'm going to listen to it more than once, yeah. I have a very strict rule that I'll buy the entire album. That's amazing. Or, um, but like, if I want to hear it, yeah. I, I'll use it. I use Apple Music. Right. Oh, so, okay. You're an Apple Music guy then. Yeah. I, I don't know. I have a bunch of friends that work for Apple and. Uh huh. Even though I think Apple Music in terms of UI and design and sure. social aspect is horrible. Yeah. Um, which UI they, is shockingly bad. Yeah. Which, which is, they even it's agree like, on. It's supposed to be, but it's Apple. Yeah. But uh. my thing is I've ripped and spent so much time ripping uh, seven inches of mm. weird stuff and like old, you know, like Jay Retard albums mm. and just like really weird things that aren't on Spotify. Sure. Um, or other digital music services, and I want to have that like in my cloud library. Sure. That I'm stuck with Apple Music because I have the right. music match and whatever. And occasionally, yeah, I want to hear some weird, obscure seven inch of like Bradford Cox and, right. and Jay Retard doing stuff together. That's cool. But you seem to have a very sort of like well organized way of approaching your music consumption. Well, I feel like, especially from being a musician and seeing about how people get paid and things like sure. that, like buying the album to me. If you if you really yeah. like this album, buy it. Just buy the album. That's amazing. You're the real MVP. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm just someone who cares and and also realizes how much music has shaped my entire life. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that really is awesome. But you had touched on something which I definitely want to get more of. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. what are the what is the music that would you say influenced you when you were in Saves the Day, and then also sure. the stuff that you probably unconsciously keep going back to now sure um well i've always and then we'll circle back i know you wanted to talk about at your funeral well um that's all right we'll circle back around to that uh um i've i've always been super fickle i hate that word i've always been super like i'm very curious i love to be trying new things all the time that's really kind of steered what i do in life and how i work in music today. Mm -hmm. Uh, my listening habits have always tied into that. There were there are things that like I would obsess over for long periods of time, and then move on to other things. And there, you know, there are things that always come back to me that are still influential and still kind of push those like special buttons. Uh, when I was when I was in high school, I was I feel like my main things were like I was obsessed with like the indie rock of the time. So like pavement and dinosaur jr yeah. uh i feel like jay mascus was like an early influence on me just because of his like really idiosyncratic way of playing yeah. um like like really just kind of like personality pouring out of the instrument i think that's maybe it was like I, you know reason i you were talking about like the way that i played earlier which is really nice and flattering and really sweet of you to say that and i think that what that was about is like just a kid looking for an outlet, you know, like sort of like, here's something that I'm going to use to speak. Uh, right. And in the context of like a collaborative environment of like, but I'm going to fit it into this thing, you know, into the, into the sort of 
framework of like this song. Right. Um, does that make any sense? No, um, no. I mean, totally. Well, because you you sat you cited Jay Maskus, who is a guitar player. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and you were a bass player. Yeah. And uh, but also the terms of of the bass lines within things like pavement. Yeah. Pavement had some kind of weird walking bass lines, but Dinosaur yeah. Junior was just in the you know wasn't wasn't as crazy. I mean, and, but yeah. You played. I would say like it was almost like you were into Sade and all these other things. Well, that came from like. That came from kind of like what I was exposed to a lot growing up. Like, in terms of like what I was listening to in high school, it was a lot of like indie rock and then hip hop of the time, like Wu Tang Clan. Like, yeah, I mean, Wu Tang was the biggest and best. Like the so. first Jizza record, yep. and like you know Nas, Mob Deep, like all that kind of stuff of the time. Like, uh, it was mostly like indie rock and hip hop at at that moment in time until I discovered like the punk and hardcore scene. But the house I grew up in, like my dad played a lot of loads of James Brown and Stevie Wonder and the Beatles. So that right. was that was the stuff that I think sowed the seeds of like how I wanted to play when I started playing. Um, it was that and the sort of like uh, the desire to, you know, speak, express myself. Um, sure. That that kind of influenced the way that like I, that I approached an instrument. Yeah. Um, if I'm glad that I picked up a bass because if I had been a drummer, I probably would have been a Keith moon type. And I hate Keith moon. What? I, I I'm sorry. It's, I know that's a controversial opinion, but like I Keith moon of the who? Yes. Okay. Yes, of course. Just making sure we're talking about the same awesome drummer. We are, but he made it. <laughs> Keith moon is, is to what, uh, Jay Dillo was to hip hop producers, which is like, in himself, he was amazing and did a wonderful thing, but like gave license to a million less talented people to like do a worse version of it. I mean, it. just hit the drums as yeah. hard as you can to overplay okay. like, everything. You know what I mean? Ah, like, uh, that's a great word, overplay. You know, I know exactly what you mean. That's the that's that's like the the nasty part of the influence is like right. Oh, I'm gonna be Keith Moon. I'm gonna like not keep a beat and like play every drum. Right. Know? Um. I was mean. I would. I was mean as a. I've been mean to some drummers over the course of my life, which is not fair. You know, like I was. It's still so important to me. Like the like the drummer is the heartbeat of the band. Well, you play in the key of X, right? If you're a drummer, you just play in whatever. Yeah. You know, so there. It's yeah. Rhythm is good. It's often underappreciated, I guess. Oh, it's so important because you can just emulate. It. Yeah. Now nowadays, emulate, especially. Yeah, yeah, you can't really emulate killer bass. I don't know. Oh, so kind of you. Uh, well, uh, I mean, so so like that was high school, and then, you know, I, I mean, what were you guys listening to on the tour bus? It was a lot of it. The in, it was all over the place, and it was I think part of the. It was a cool environment because the the influences were probably more diverse than you would have thought. Like there was like David, our guitar player. And Brian, they were they were the ones that were like obsessed with a lot of Britpop. Like we listened to a lot of Pulp and Blur, and Dave was really big on like Americana type stuff. He was okay. like he was really into Neil Young and Wilco. I think at the time when they were like a new thing. Yeah. Uh, Ted, who was one of the guitar players in the band at the time, he was um. He was like a really dyed in the wool hardcore guy, um, and was really 
he educated me a lot about like all the old hardcore and punk records that were like important uh important pieces of work and uh let's see there was once we there was a certain period where everybody got really obsessed like the whole band got really obsessed with the beatles uh i feel like every if you're ever in a band everyone has that moment where you like come to jesus and realize the beatles are the greatest yeah it's very (laughs) it's very natural you know it's there was i i had had that moment for my own moment had come earlier in life with that so when it it happened for them i was kind of rolling my eyes a little bit like come on guys whatever like (laughs) I've been up on this. This was like 40, 30 years ago, man. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but so hopefully I'm giving a somewhat linear picture of like what, what kind of fed into everything um, influence wise. Um, then what was I listening to? My, my tastes were probably all over the place. I was just kind of, I went through a period of like consuming everything I could for right. a while. Uh really like educating myself about like really all- testing out that electronic skip protection on that CD. Player, yeah, right? totally. <laughs> the disc man that I would have like in the van or the, or the later on the bus. Yeah. Uh, I was reading Mojo magazine a lot. I remember, which was really great about like, which is a British mag. Yeah. Brit- yeah. A British music mag that was very good about like pre pre being able to like do your own research on the internet. Like, it was great about saying like this is a classic record you should go listen to this. Mm-hmm. So I was just kind of diving into everything like getting really obsessed with like the Velvet Underground and the Stooges and Big Star and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Um and then when we were on tour in London I got into soul music. Uh I bought like a Wilson Pickett record and like a and like a Tina Turner record uh at a truck stop and then had a period of like the next 10 years was just like obsessed with with like uh with r&b like like 60s through the 80s basically right r&b and soul music um the thing you know i was saying before like i was my i've always been very kind of like i've had tunnel vision a lot in terms of what i'm interested in in terms of music and so in the 90s i never listened to i kind of consciously decided to close out a lot of the electronic music that was going on at the time and the 90s electronic was like chemical brothers and moby and a lot of that stuff and then also like you know it was probably a reaction prodigy yeah totally it was probably a reaction to like the rave scene was a really big thing at the time and Mm -hmm. i had a lot of friends that were like heavy into drugs that were go raving every weekend uh and i think that like Maybe it was like the the influence of like being in the punk and hardcore scene where like you were you guys sh- straight edge? Uh, I think there were like kids in the band that dabbled in being straight edge. Okay, at not not for more than like half a second. I never was, but it was maybe like being around that environment of like, oh, people that do drugs are bad, and like you know, yeah, they're rotting their brains. So I never listened to. I was never into electronic music in the nineties. So it's been amazing to, in the last decade, be able to like discover things that I never paid attention to when I was younger. Like I've, I listened to a ton of Massive Attack this year. Actually, like I've been obsessed with the Massive Attack record Blue Lions this year because I never listened to Good it album. when it came out. Oh, it's fantastic! Yeah, it's like I feel I feel like a lot of the like young producers of today should take a cue from like the the workmanship of like how great the production on something like that sounds right um 
Am I staying somewhat on track here, or am I just I zip all over the place? No, no, no. This is good. I think <laughs> I think for the sake of time too, because I wanted to discuss like what you were doing now. But like, sure. saves the day continues to pretty much like you, like just crush everything in terms of of opening up this new genre. Sure. Stay what you are is is wildly successful. Then you guys came up with In Reverie, and mm-hmm. we don't have to get too much into that. But then you end up leaving the band, sure, um, and. We don't have to get into that either, but I oh, kind of can. I mean, this was 15 years ago. There's no like, I'm not nursing any wound or anything. Okay. Like that. Well, you know, w- why did you leave then? Uh, well, you know, a lot of different reasons. Uh, you know, it, so this was like 2003, 2004, I guess we're talking about when I stopped being in the band. Uh, and this, as you said, it was a process of like, we would make a record and then next, then, and we would tour. There were long, long, a lot of long stretches of touring, like eight, nine months. My first tour that I ever went on with the band was like it was like three months. Not um, we didn't stay on the road for nine months, but like it, a touring cycle would be eight or nine months. We would be out for the yeah. majority of the year with downtime in between. Uh, but you know, e- each thing got progressively larger until we were at a place where. I feel like the apex of it was, you know, we we could play Roseland in New York City, which is like 3500 people uh and sell it out. Yeah. Um touring on like two tour buses. Yeah, yeah cuz you guys were also you were opening up for Blink 182. Or... We did. We did a tour with Weezer and Yeah, tour, Weezer, Blink and a tour Green Day. with uh with Blink and Green Day. Those were like the two really big support tours that I was a part of. Yeah. Um and they were really different experiences. You each stage of the of the experience, you know, it's like you start out in a van sleeping on people's floors. Then maybe you're in a van sleeping in hotels. Then you, eventually you move up to a tour bus, which your experience of being on the road it, it really transforms at that point. Uh, and then you have the we we had the experience of touring sheds, you know, large sports arenas opening for these big bands. And that's where you start to identify with, uh, you know, people like Pink Floyd, who are singing these rock songs about isolation and how lonely their opulent rock star life can be. Because your your life sort of becomes this weird uh, cycle of, you know, you sleep on your bus, you wake up, you're inside this large enclosed concrete uh, network of catacombs. You go find your dressing room, you sound check, and you play. Sometimes you never see the outside, uh, and your life can be like this for months at a time. I'm not complaining. It was an amazing experience. But... No, but I think it's also okay to talk about how that stuff wasn't easy. I know, no. you know, I'm <laughs> sure there was a there's a billion people who would have wanted to trade places with you, but yeah. after they realize the additional work and emotional stress that's incurred on sure. a musician that's trying to do that, and also have the same energy every night. Totally. You know? And that look, the playing is always the best part. That's the part that uh, that's incomparable. And standing on stage, you know, I, I always remember probably one of uh, the most like one of the experiences that's like most burned in my memory is like we played Madison Square Garden once, opening for Green Day, and I got to ride the subway there with my bass in my hands. So like I got to take the subway <laughs> to Madison Square Garden with my instrument and then play that night. And the roar of the crowd that you hear like when the lights go down and that many people are kind of s- energy of like that many people screaming back at you. It's like 
incomparable. There's nothing like that. It's like such a rush of energy. But anyway, there's, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But, um, it, you know, living on the road for, for seven, six, seven, eight years is really taxing. It's hard to have relationships, real relationships with people outside of the bubble that you live in, in your band or, or your industry or whatever it is. Uh, you, you feel like you don't have roots down in one place because you're gone so much of the time. Uh, and so, but for me, you know, I had reached a point with, uh, with this bands that I had played in for six or seven years that, uh, I, you know, I, I was starting to feel a little bit disconnected from the, the culture of what we were doing, uh, mm-hmm. musically and in terms of the work, you know, the, and all the main thing is that I, I was a person, I still am a person who has a real appetite to always uh, be able to change and move and move in a forward direction. Uh, I, and I had, a, I had a real desire to do new things, to always be doing new things. I, st- I still do. Uh, that's something that's worked for me against me in my, and against me in my life, probably, is I've never wanted to s- specialize too much in anything other than being creative and making music. Um, I wanted to be able to do other things. And I was afraid of partially afraid of being stuck in uh, the world of being a touring musician, which is a really, really difficult bubble to fight your way out of. And Mm -hmm. it was for me, it took me like a good 10 years to feel, to kind of come down from that experience. So there was that aspect of it. There was the aspect of it that like, you know, you you're playing this music that is a very in a way youthful music it appeals to it appeals to like these sort of like um adolescent aspects of people of of uh of people's you know lives uh and for me it was you know i had been playing this music for a long time and and having a hand in making it and and felt really Siri's weighing in on the conversation. Right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> what did she say? Classic Siri. I don't know, man. I don't remember you saying anything in in relation to uh, "Hey Siri." I, but... I did not ask you, Siri. <laughs> um, where was I? I, well, I guess maybe in a nut without rambling too much. I was starting to feel like a little bit, uh, like I wanted to be able to move on and and explore other other things. I wanted to be able to do different things in my life and in music at the time I, I wasn't uh at the time i thought i was done being a musician i thought i was going to leave this band and and that was it uh we had spent it, right. also, it also there's a lot of pressure that gets put on you to be in this really successful en- enterprise a bunch of 20 something guys together for for this amount of time there were some people in the band that came and went during that period yeah uh but you know there's there's ten there's tensions that arise where you the the band becomes a business and you have to as a bunch of really young people kind of decide how to run this business together there's an artistic aspect of it there's a there's a uh there's a financial aspect of it too and those things can can cause can cause friction for me it was i i think in in a nutshell i reached a, a point where i felt like i was I was done. It was time for me to move on. And 
that was another decision that I made that seemed like it should have been really difficult, but at the time it was really easy. I just sort of felt like, okay, my time in this is finished. I'm not sure what I'm going to do next, but uh, it's it's time for me to move on. Well, the, I mean, the good news also too, and this is not to knock the band, but like my favorite Saves of the Day albums are the ones where for me it was like the core band. Oh, you that's know? nice of you. So to say. like, I, I mean, it's funny because I saw. I had another friend of mine who went and saw, because I, I, Chris Conley still tours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Saves they're still doing it, and those they still play some of those songs. Which you know, especially now, like some of these people are like going back and reliving this stuff and experiencing it, and it still feels the way that it did playing that. I mean, that's really cool. I need uh, to sneak into a show one day, like with a with a fake mustache on. Well, I already <laughs> have a mustache. Maybe I'll wear like a wig and sunglasses or something and sneak in. Well, and I think, and this is like one of the last things I want to ask, and this is a very open kind of broad question. Sure. Um, I kind of, I often wonder, would you, how much bigger would you guys have been if social media was out? Because the amount of people and champions that you had of your band mm-hmm. that were, became even, you know, with Chris Caraba, which I remember at the time, of you know he's pre-social media too mm-hmm. of dashboard confessional you know would talk about i'm because so it was him and then the other drummer um and they talked about saves the day and those mm-hmm. records and i was like hey what sort of stuff are you listening to and they're like oh well you know have you ever heard saves the day or because mm-hmm. it was like i think saves the day and then they also mentioned like hot rod circuit which i never got into mm-hmm. but um i don't know and i, I often wonder like you know, or would that have been worse on you? I mean, because if you talk about the additional sort of criticisms and ridicule that you could hear from, sure. you know, the rest of the world. I mean, and I think that's the thing that I, my heart breaks for bands and stuff now whom sure. can go, you know, maybe they feel like they just did a great show and they fire up their Instagram and you have right. somebody just trolling you. Sure. You know, you had that too back then also, you know, there was like still plenty of ways for people to hate on you, you know, and yeah. Yeah, and the band, you know, the band got plenty of it because especially like the punk and hardcore scene can be very um like like it tends to it tended to be very inclusive and, you know, about like about like we're all in this together, but if somebody went and did their own thing, there was a lot of or if somebody like each saves a day each record that that saves a day made tended to be different than the last one right and people would get incensed about that you know oh you sold out you made a pop record uh you know i was one of those people i hated uh stay where you are right when it came out sure it took me you know a couple weeks but i was like what the hell yeah, this yeah. Record sucks and then i listened to it and i was like oh man and then i heard freakish and everything and just lost my mind it was so good i think that's cool i mean i think it's cool to be able to do that where I, it means that you're growing if you make some people angry but sometimes you make too many people angry and then <laughs> some of your fan base leaves. I feel like a lot of bands at the time did that where where like you had a lot of people make their like their like experimental record where it was really, you know, everybody got into like psychedelic stuff and listened to the Beatles and <laughs> and made their like cl- classic rock influence record and then all the young fans that got into the earlier records were just kind of like what the hell is this? Yeah. But it happens and and you know, uh, I guess to to respond to what you were saying before, 
it's it's you can't put it in any other time you know it's like it's it was a thing of its time that's a good uh, that's a good answer and I that agree. and that's what's special about it is that in in music uh it's like lightning hitting you in the ass man you know <laughs> like you can you can make something and you can't you can feel like you're making a great song or a great or a great album and you know that thing that makes it connect with people that's that's the thing that 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 you can't measure right you, know? you don't know when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen you can approximate you can you can try to feel you can try to feel it out with your best artistic instincts but that's why we that's why we do what we do that's why i still work in music uh and make music is that i want to connect with people you know right. I, I i think that's why i still do it I think, you know, I think I want to, I want to be able to have that experience of like reaching people in some way. Yeah. Make, whether it's, you know, if it's something like that, something like that, that's youthful, it might make you feel, it might make you feel, uh, you know, sad or might, it might ratchet up the angst level for you. It might make you feel like, feel more emotional about missing your girlfriend or, you know, it's. It might be something more, uh, it might just make you think or ask a question about the world around you. Right. I don't know. That's what all art is. You're trying to, you're trying to have a conversation with people in some way. Yeah. Well. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, you've (laughs) definitely done a hell of a job. (laughs) Thanks. Well, I was fortunate to be a part of something at the time that was able to connect with so many people. That was, that was really cool. Yeah. I'm. I'm definitely like really I'm very thankful that I was able to do that at that time in my life. Well this this was awesome. This was like super special for me. I cool, appreciate man. you making the time. Yeah, yeah. Is there is there any other stuff that you like want to mention or add before we we wrap up here? Or? Sure. Uh well, I mean what am I doing? I mean, I'm I've been working consistently in music for the last like I mean, I went to school in my late in my late 20s and then I somehow ended up back in music I, and I've been kind of, uh, I mean, sometimes I produce records. Sometimes I help people finish records. I, I mostly, I work on people's albums. I make people's live shows for them. I'm kind of like a, kind of like a, um, all purpose music creative. I haven't played live in maybe eight years. That's got to change. I would love to. Please let me <laughs> let me join your band. I would love to. I haven't. The right thing hasn't popped up yet, but I would love to play again. It's something that I really miss. Yeah, I miss playing live too. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's incomparable. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm here. We're here in Dumbo, Brooklyn, at my at my studio, which is called Vinegar Hill Sound. Uh, and I mean, I, you've had a lot of great guys record here. I know the the, totally. v, the VW guys were here. Yeah, there. There's been a lot of cool stuff to come through the studio. Vampire Weekend, that is. Sorry, yeah, not the yeah. Cars. Volkswagen has <laughs> recorded here. Uh, yeah, that's the the downstairs live room has like a lot of cool stuff that comes through a lot of time. And uh, my work up here, a lot of it is like producing and writing work that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I work on a lot of different cool records. You know, I've been i I've worked with a lot of like young electronic music producers and and more quote-unquote rock stuff i feel like rock is an antiquated term at this point but well, it's just as no one knows what it is anymore. yeah it's exactly <laughs> it's a super nebulous term i love i i would love to hear more guitars on records agreed i, I love the frank ocean record because it was such a weird 
piece of work and there were the most recent one yeah yeah no well no it's so polarizing i i I think i'm not smart enough to get it yet Mm. i've i've listened to it maybe three or four times yeah and i there's every time i hear it again i'm like okay yeah i i think i understand that yeah yeah I don't think it's a bad record. I'm just, I, I loved it. It's very heavy. I have to, to get... It is. It. I think it's a difficult record. Uh, it's a, to, use the, to use a difficult term. It's a, it's a difficult record. Um, but I, I, something about it really connects for me. I like the Solange record, too. Those were two records that, to me, like I heard this year that I was like, okay, these are... Did she do that record here? She, actually, yeah, she did come through. I have a really funny... If if you want to close soon, I can close with this story. All right, let's do this. Let's hear it. Oh, Solange Knowles story. She was recording downstairs uh, with Reed, who's who Reed runs the live room here, um, and she was doing some overdubs to finish her record. I think it was some keyboard overdubs. I was up here working on I don't know production project. I can't remember which it was, but so I was. Uh, I'll just say it like I was smoking a lot of pot at the time. And so okay. I I had called my I had called my pot dealer. And and um so she she texted me back and was like, I'll be there in 30 minutes. Uh she? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. There's yeah breaking down gender stereotypes yeah, yeah. in the drug dealing industry. Totally. No, I know, it's great. <laughs> um I'm not I'm smoking zero weed nowadays. I'm actually like doing acupuncture and yoga a lot right now. Good for you. Those are my weed, man. Um, so you text her. Oh, I text her. She's like, I'll be there in like 30 minutes. 30 minutes go by, nothing. An hour goes by, nothing. Uh, hour and 15 minutes later, I get a knock at the door. And it's Reed ushering in uh, this girl, the weed dealer. So Reed had answered the door when she buzzed and thought she was with Solange's camp. Brought her into the session. And so... <laughs> So the weed dealer was hanging out downstairs in Solange's session for like a good 45 minutes, not knowing what to say because Reed thought that she was with Solange and Solange's people thought that she was with Reed. So she, I, she got to like hang out and watch them do their thing. And <laughs> I think I think she really enjoyed it. Nice. <laughs> she didn't give me a discount. though. Oh, <laughs> weak. You're like, look, man, I just brought you with with the crew. Uh, all right, what else? Is that it? I don't know. I think so, I guess. Cool. All right, well, this was fun. Yeah, we'll have to get you on again. This was fun. Anytime. All right, see ya. See ya. You've been listening to Blamo. Thanks again to Evan for coming on. If you like what you heard, leave a review on iTunes. It helps get the word out. Subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcast, or send me an email at jeremy at blamopod.com. See you next week.